You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment. And I can tell you, you'll want to listen to find out what she has to say about the whole property marketing process being a performance. For an example, one the other day, um, the, the lady had two young children and she she ideally she was looking at having ponies. Well, we knew the neighbour had some ponies, so we got ponies put in the yard. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Kate Lumby, who is principal, sales agent and auctioneer of her own family business in Dural called Lumby Hampson. Kate's parents started the business in 1968, so she's effectively grown up in real estate. And along the way, she's collected a host of awards and a husband, which meant that she had to change the name of the business, right, Kate? That's right. <laughs> He's the Hampson. Over her two decades in the industry, her experiences encompassed sales, developments and acreage, very different to the inner city area in which I operate. And it's still rare to find female property auctioneers, so we're especially keen to hear her insights and whether she thinks being a woman makes any difference. Welcome, Kate. Hi, and thank you. Thank you for having me. You're out in, in the Dural area, Kenthurst, you know, you're dealing- The other side of the bridge. The other side of many bridges, in fact. So you're dealing, though, with very much of a local buyer, I would guess. Would that be the case? So in terms of those relationships ongoing, there's much more of focus, much less of a transient type of buyer or type of population. Would that be the case? Yeah, it's pretty fair to say. Well, like certainly over the years, you look at the hub of the Hills District and that northwest sector- in the acreage market, people went there. There was a lot of industry in rural agriculture where all your parsley and cabbages came from. And I <laughs> guess I was sort of privy to that from a very early age and, and it just grew up with that whole genre of real estate. But, of course, the rezonings and they're actually now getting a railway station out there. The whole area, I guess, has undergone a massive regentrification. So you've got a lot of smaller blocks that have come in. And so your background is that you did performance at school and, yeah, and yeah. then you got into sales in the family business. Mm -hmm. Then you diverted into auctioneering solely. Is that the case? Yeah, so basically from leaving school, I, I opened up a drama school, speech and drama, and I, I really didn't feel like I wanted to go straight into real estate. I just felt I wanted to do my own thing. And then with mum and dad sort of going, I guess, more into the retirement, talking, those sorts of things. Handing thought, over the family business. Yeah, I thought, reins. hang on, I've got to do something here. So I've jumped back into selling and it was right in that time where you just literally couldn't get the contracts dry quick enough and people were making ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 within two weeks, four weeks. When was this? This was, uh, was pre-2000, so before the boom. Right. But it was when the development all started mm -hmm. to happen out there, so it was right. sort of like about mid-90s. And of course, the building going up there, it was very affordable at, the, at that time. You could sort of buy a brand new McMansion out there for five, six hundred thousand, where they're now sort of 1.5s, which that's the first home buy bracket still almost now. Nuts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was never about the dollar for me. It was all about how can I help people? And I really believe it's, a, it's an honour to sell someone's home or to represent their home because it's representing their family. 
I think agents tend to make, I don't want to say they make a mistake, but you walk into someone's home and you've got two choices. You can see bricks and mortar, as often people do, or as I, I choose to and always have the respect um, for the home and the family. And I think that transfers also to the buyers. Just while you're there, there's a, you know, there's a behavioural bias that we value things that we own more than if someone else owns it. So when you've got a very strong emotional attachment to it, how do you think that that plays out to people, the owners overvaluing potentially what they own? Um, and how do you deal with that as an agent? Massively. Uh, you know, someone said to me the other day, a buyer, a potential seller and looking to buy, he said, oh, Kate, I'd like to, like to buy in low and sell high. And I said, oh. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> Warren um, Martin said that once, yeah. yeah. There's no doubt, particularly in the rural sector, you've got like these properties that they've literally owned for 20, 30 plus years, mm. could even be second generation, and the blood, sweat and tears that has gone into it. And, of course, when we go in and we educate them around the market, which you know, these days there's so many tools for buyers and sellers to be able to do that far more than there ever has been. Yes. What do you use? Well, I think the big ones, the realestate.com and, dom- and domain for buyers and sellers, they yeah. can easily access and look at. Um, and I think that's where more than that, it's like going and seeing a jacket on the rack or, or seeing something where it's in a department store. And if you don't try it on, and that's where I think mm-hmm. all buyers and all sellers should get out there and see more property yeah. and go and attend auctions mm. so they feel confident. I 100% agree. And, you know, it's actually going out and looking at these properties that actually you can really get comparables because. You know, there's so much more to it than just the what it looks like on the tin. On the tin. <laughs> <laughs> and the way the photographers make it these days, it can either look, you can either get a shock yep. when you get out there or it could be the other way around yeah. as well. That looks better in real life than it does in the photos. So you've got particularly emotional vendors in your area mm. based because of that history and all that emotional, all that family invested time and memories and all that sort of stuff mm. that they're parting with. And then you've got buyers coming along that aren't necessarily as emotionally invested. You know, obviously, they will once they buy it and live in there themselves. How do you then get a match between the two? Well, I think I'm probably a bit more spoiled in that area because with the acres, we've got a lot more things, I guess, on there versus, say, a residential. Look at. Yeah. <laughs> so I always love to connect with the land. With the acreage, you can get, of course, arable land, but of course, you can also get where it might be partially bush. If there's an opportunity to pick up a rock or a stone and throw it and, and roll it down the hill um, into the escarpment, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, so you stand on the, on the edge <laughs> of the bush and chuck and hoik it through. Yeah, rocks in. <laughs> it might be that. Um, Do you go, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like it, but we actually would if it was that type of property. Yeah. If there's bellbirds around or I have one at the moment that's got bowerbirds, if there's tractors or there's uh, ride-on on bikes, it's painting the picture for them to actually see. I think you've got a lot more to be able to do than, say, for an example, someone imagining where their furniture is going to fit in a residential because mm-hmm. um, it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I guess if you've got, uh, you know, the, the opposite of it's instead of the tree change, if it was a sea change, a sim- similar sort of thing. So you're really telling a story or painting a picture and really going to a lot of effort, I guess, or at a further extent than, say, a transactional agent, you know, who's just selling an apartment or a house in the standard lot. You've really got to go there and, and create that whole magic around that. Do you actually use props? Have you ever dragged some sheep in and got some horses We in? actually do, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I think it's critical to understand the buyer profile as much as you can. What are their needs and mm. wants? And for an example, one the other day, um, the, the lady had two young children and she was looking at having ponies. 
well, we knew the neighbour had some ponies, so we got mm-hmm. ponies put in the yard. Yep. Um, you know, do we put bird seed out when we know that mm-hmm. uh, we're selling? Absolutely we do. Yeah. So auctions are a fascinating thing. They're a very emotional experience, both positive and negative for buyers and sellers. What made you take a big out-of-sales focus a lot on auctions and then obviously getting back into sales? What about auctions do you love and what excites you? Well, for me it was always like we – predominantly sold by private treaty. And the Hills District was predominantly private treaty. And I had a lot of uh, real estate friends in the inner city who would only auction. Um, And we would talk about the differences and I would always say the objections, which are not as common these days. Auction doesn't work in our area. People don't want to pay more. All these types of, well, so I guess I went on a journey and probably for me it was at the height of my career from a sales perspective. I felt that I was young enough to go, okay, let us let me do something that hadn't been done at that stage. I did meet a, a lady that told me she had auctioned a property, you know, 10 years before. So I wasn't officially the first, but I know I was the first female in there and certainly to have my own uh, auctioneering business, my auctioneer. Remember one of my good friends said to me, oh, oh, it's really hard being young as an auctioneer. This is like 15 plus years ago. And I said, well, try being young and female. Obviously, you know, there's challenges. It's a male-dominated industry and Etc. Have you found that actually to be the case though? It's actually been more challenging or have you found maybe it is a little bit more challenging to them, but I can use this and work it. I can use humor. I can use, have you found that being a woman actually helps? I think it works both ways. Like getting, getting the jobs. And I guess from a real estate background, I had that prospecting mentality. So, and I wasn't scared to hear no. So I'd knock on doors knock on doors and they say, no, I've got an auctioneer. We've been using them for 20 years. And of course the traditional Look of an auctioneer was not somebody turning up in a in a in a skirt and and jacket. You know? <laughs> You're wearing a red tie, yeah, and be, uh, yeah, <laughs> with a gavel pin on their suit on That's the lapel. Right. And I think the 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 type of auctioneer now has changed a lot more too. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, if you look at where auctions were used like twenty plus years ago, a lot of the time it was used for mortgagees. And it was more of the, the role, I guess, more of a bit of a more mm-hmm. of a dictating role, like, oh, no, I'm not going to take your bid or, you know, this is the way we're going to. And I, I really deconstructed that from a performance background and went, okay, well, these people are so nervous coming here. This is not something they do every day of the week. This is something they might only do once or maybe, yeah, once in a lifetime. And, you know, I used to watch the buyers and, and because I penciled for two years. So that was my that was my start. And for those listeners who don't know what penciling oh, is, yes. that, that's the person that stands there writing down the bids <laughs> so that there's a record of, of what those bids are. I was a pencil girl for uh, – and what I used to do every single auction, I would pretend I was calling. In my mind, I was the auctioneer. So whilst I was penciling, mm-hmm. in my mind, I was filling in the words, I was listening. and and I was watching, obviously, but and this was prior to registrations too. The old um, days. Yeah, obviously, you know, that's, that's been a wonderful thing, I think, for our industry too. People can see who they're bidding against now, mm-hmm. whereas they didn't know where. So it's like a lot of industries, it's come, become a lot more professional. So those buyers that have rocked up and they, they might do this the one time in their life, mm. these guys have no idea what they're doing. This maybe the first time they've ever done it. Mm. What are some of the things as an auctioneer that, you kind of do to help them feel more comfortable and I guess start saying offers. Start spending their money. Yeah. <laughs> so let me answer that twofold. If it's me as the auctioneer and I haven't been the sales agent on it, um, very first thing I want to do as the auctioneer is I want to know well and truly from the outset who are the best buyers, 
Tell me about them. What do they do? Where do they live? Why are they looking at it? What do they like best about it? Because if our top three buyers, for an example, like it because, you know, the park or the big backyard, whatever they like about it, there's no more no point talking about it being a great investment. But if the top three buyers are all looking at investing, then, of course, that would be mm-hmm. um, where I would be positioning. So knowing the buyers uh, well as, as well as I possibly can, even their names, um, because they don't know me and I've met them. So on the day just before the auction, I want to go and meet those top buyers, mm-hmm. make them feel comfortable, even if it's me giving them the bidder's guide as a reason to talk to them. It allows them to, I guess, eyeball, feel a bit more comfortable and also allows me to ask them, you know, is there any questions that you have before you start? Yep. Trying to take the edge off, I guess. Drops the barrier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and often people will want to put you up on a balcony so they can think you can be seen. From a performance side of things, you want to eliminate barriers and be on the same level, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so you've got these buyers and they're getting more comfortable. Mm. What are the are some of the things that you get them just to just start making that first bid? Because that's the hardest bid, right? I always like to try and do the registrations or be part of that process. Because I get to talk to them again and I'm noting down their details. So when you're talking someone's name and you're doing those details and their child might be near them and you've got that opportunity to sort of connect a bit more. But also too, things like as small as, and I know you guys wanted to delve you know, as deep as you can, it might sound cheeky, it might sound a uh, small thing, but even the bidder's registration number, we don't have to give a, a sequential number. So, Chris, for an example, I'm not going to ask you your date of birth, but if uh, if your birthday, for an example, was on the 7th or the 9th, I'd give you a bit of number 7 mm-hmm. or whatever's appropriate. And often people- That wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> and people actually will go, yeah. oh, that's my lucky number. How did you know? I just, just looked at your driver's, driver's license. license. <laughs> at that point, too, I can ask them, Chris, you'll start me off? And they might go, ha, 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 ha. Start me off. Mm-hmm. It's often the p- first buyer that starts will be the the winner. Start mm-hmm. me off, and I'll ask everybody that. Mm-hmm. Well, not if they're lining well, up, do yeah. it surely. <laughs> but what tends to happen is just by asking that. If we don't ask, then when you ask and you're at the auction, of course, not everybody rapidly fires at you, but it certainly does make a huge difference. I believe in there to getting that opening. It's interesting, piece. isn't it? That inherently, we're probably all a little bit polite, so we feel if we ask for something, we you know might be more inclined to, to respond. Especially if there's a connection to you from the start, so you got to ask for well, it. I'm a bit curious because on a yeah. Saturday, so I know my own schedule on a Saturday, for instance, and I know what it's like in the inner suburbs of Sydney, and it's mad, and the auctioneer was often running late because they're stuck in traffic and then they get there, they've got five, not even five minutes, a minute really to do mm. a quick tour of the house and mm. agent quickly briefs them and obviously they work together so there's there's a bit of a shorthand that goes on but they don't have a lot of time to get up to speed. It sounds like you actually, just a difference in terms of locality, that you have a lot more time to actually settle into the entire performance of that auction, i.e. you're there for the open house prior, then you know, the registration then through to the auction, is that, would that be As fair? much time as obviously possible. And and I guess that when, when Chris asked me in there, like what made you sort of, um, you know, go into auctioning, that was another reason as well because, um, and I remember very vividly this, this particular uh, property, it was over 140 squares and the auctioneer turned up literally, it was on one of my own properties, this is prior to me getting into auctioneering, and they turned up like literally five minutes before. and like ran up the stairs, is you know, ran around the house and I'm thinking, 
to connect with a property, and it doesn't mean you, you got the luxury of an hour before and all that sort of thing, and, and you do get to see a lot on on the internet through photos and floor plans and and Google Maps and that sort of thing. But I, I think that it's a very big thing for someone to sell their family home, and and to buy it, and to of course buy it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned there about the agent rocking up five minutes before, and or the auctioneer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, and and they currently get connected to the property. What's your view on auctions, you know, auction house mm-hmm. versus on site? And oh, well, I always think it's always better to see it, touch it, feel it. I think mm-hmm. um, from a buyer's perspective, if they're there and there is something that um, they particularly like about it, it might be an aspect, it might be a pool, it might be a view, it might be a room, it might be windows. If they're watching it on a screen, um, you know, it's certainly not nearly the same sensory level. Um, as being in a room, but there is school of thought, I guess, around with the with the rooms, and I do think there is a place for rooms. You know, when you've got a, a crowded room, so I, I think that's another area with auctions that makes a huge difference to the result is if you have got a crowd, like a busy restaurant, you don't go into the one that's got you know no one sitting there or one person. You go into the one that's crowded, and I think that creates in itself um, interest, even if there's only two or three buyers there. Yeah, You've got 100 people. It's the smoke and mirrors part of it, isn't it? It's like they don't know that all those people haven't registered. And, and it actually always amazes me that people don't, or bidders, don't go and watch other bidders register. And so, you know, and they rock up the last minute because they're sort of worried about their own game. They're not actually pulling themselves, you know, the helicopter effect and pulling themselves back and thinking, okay, this is a whole whole thing going on here. I'm not the only cog in this wheel. And it, and then they'll rock up the last minute after they've been playing silly buggers trying to pretend they're not interested. Mm. <laughs> and they've got no idea who else is actually registered or if mm. anyone indeed mm. has. And the agent can take advantage of that by pretending they go up to chat to all the neighbours during the auction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say that with clients looking at considering bidding on a prop or even going to buy something, just go to the open home, get there 15 minutes before, stay 15 minutes after. Mm. It's an hour out of your life just to to actually see who's actually going through the place, not just rock up, two minutes, go through. Same at an auction. You know, you mm. want to be there early. You kind of want Definitely. to know exactly what's s- going on. See um, who the bidders are and where they're standing too because yes. often it's always the best buyers stand next to each other. It's so weird that, isn't it? <laughs> I often find that myself quite quite, uh, quite incredible. And, in fact, because I've been around longer than registration as well, and when I first started in real estate, I used to go to auctions and I would just try to learn. To, I was learning to read body language and I was watching people in the crowd and I'm trying yeah. to, before the auction started, trying to pick mm. who would bid. Mm. And that's how I started teaching myself how to read read the play or read the, the room. The great sport. Yeah, I found it fascinating for starters, but but it was very interesting because you did find that. And, of course, I had no idea in advance like now I do. I watch them register and then I see them go and stand next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> One question here just around selling properties that aren't in a city, for example. It's selling a terrace in Newtown. It's very easy to say, look, that one across the road sold for 2.1 three weeks ago. This one's got to be worth a lot more. How do you think that that plays out where you are? You know, in getting those comparables, Mm. how do you think that that really affects the whole market up there? Real estate, we know, is all about supply and demand. So if you've got 10 buyers that are looking for that particular product, if it's a premium property or it's got everything that ticks t- most of the boxes, um, obviously the greater the interest is going to be. And, you know, I think that's where that price conversation comes in. You know, you put a price on it. Who's to say someone wouldn't pay more? And I think that's where tr- auction does give that 
opportunity to showcase the property, get those buyers into competition. And of course, then it's for the owners to make a decision um, whether they want to trade at that level or not. So the Sydney wire clearance rate's currently sitting around the mid-60s, right? So that's sort of in common parlance, that's like, well, there's a buyer for every property. But then Sydney is not one real estate market, really, mm. is it? There's mm. so many sub-markets. Oh, so true. So in your area, for instance, are you finding that you're still auctioning or still taking as many properties to auction as you were, say, a year ago when the boom was in full flight? Or are you really changing that the approach to the market? Oh, and it's interesting that you brought up that too. I think it's always a good litmus. If the eastern suburbs, for example, is doing well, we find we're a little bit quieter and vice versa. Really? So, yeah, if they're, if they're quiet, we're busy. I don't know why. A reverse yeah. correlation. So what are you, what's the market like at the moment for you then? Yeah, I think the acreage market is very strong still. I think there's a lot of activity and people um, around with a lot of money. So you've got a lot of the developments um, from Box Hill, Schofields, Riverston, those areas which are opposite sort of Kellyville that are now selling um, their development sites for anywhere from 10, 20, 30, up to 70 and 100 million. So they're going to place their money somewhere and they're generally not coming into you know, to go to Bellevue Hill and um, changing their whole dynamic of the family. So they want to buy acreage. They know that if they sit on it for another 10, 15, 20 years, they're the same thing. So the more flat arable land, um, the more premium the price, the more buyers there's going to be. Of course, the the more the the uh, black wallabies are around and uh, it's goat country, well, it's uh, going to be less desirable, I guess, for any. And, and um, black wallabies, goats, they like hills, right? Yes, so that's hills- right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the cooey country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the auctions, what's some of the bidders that you find that are very common in your area? Well, buyers, actually. Look, I think you always get the buyers that are just straight up and tell you, yes, I like it, yes, I want to proceed, what do I have to do? Then you get the buyers, but it could be that they've had a bad um, experience or it could be that they're giving advice from someone else, like it might be a family member that's saying, oh, don't tell the agent too much or they'll say, oh, this is my offer, stands till 5pm, otherwise I won't be coming to the auction. Um, And that's that's a hard one to gauge often because we know that a lot of the time, or well, I don't want to pick a figure, 90% of the time they're going to turn up. <laughs> yeah, it's that, common. And, of course, then there's the buyers that don't tell you that they're interested and the property could be sold um, or they run down the property. I guess that's the the other one. The owner doesn't want to sell to someone that doesn't like their property and uh, that's their way of thinking, oh, they're going to get it for less. It is a funny one, isn't it? Because I know that as an agent you're going to sit with your owner and you're going to explain to them, you know, there's buyer A, buyer B, buyer C. Quite often you refer to them in certain ways. I used to have nicknames for the buyers. And so they develop a picture as well and a bit of an idea of who that buyer is and they tend to get their favourite. I know the agents often often get their favourite. Even in a competitive market, do you think that plays out in the buyer's favour, the one definitely. that is nice? Definitely, definitely. I think um, there's no doubt. Uh, that, you know, my advice to any buyer buying at auction or any time would be, I mean, it's important to be nice, I think, in anything, but be nice to the agent, um, but uh, also be the preferred buyer. You know, make it easy. Um, (laughs) Be the preferred buyer. Be the preferred buyer. You know, if you're emotionally attached to the, especially these homes that you're selling, they've had them for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, the money's part of it and they know they're going to get a great price, but... Mm. You know, they also want to see that, drive past that home in the future, have, you know, good memories and, you know, if they can see it's going to a happy home Mm. and a future family, you know, that's obviously going to be more exciting to them than 
you know, some investor who's just trying to make some cash. Exactly, exactly. And there's so many examples I can think of that where the owner has decided to transact and sell rather than trying to get, uh, you know, they might have hoped for, um, you know, an extra, say, 100 it might be well above market, you know, three, four hundred thousand. But to them, it's been their whole life. It's their, their, their selling. But they've made the decision um, to transact because they like the family. It's like they're passing their baton. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if you haven't got kids, maybe hire a couple of kids for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it is really interesting, isn't it? Because the emotion or the elephant is in this case or in a lot of cases, actually guiding the vendor as well as the mm. buyer. Mm. And so then you've got the agent in the middle and agents have got their own elephant they're trying to ride. So there's so much in terms of psychology and, and buyer behaviour and, and just human behaviour throughout the entire process. But you could even wind it back to when you do the appraisal, correct? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. How do you win the business in the first place? Well, I think it's first and foremost, it's it's identifying, listening to exactly what they want to achieve. You know, is it something they're doing to make money, which could very well be the case, or is it that they're wanting to downsize or that is it that they're wanting to give money to their children? Well, that's right. It's not all about the money. They might be upgrading and they might have a six-month gap before they settle on their build. And do you think the terms of an offer actually just as important as what the actual offer is? Yeah, I do, yeah. And I, I think it um, – I know that money is very important in these decisions as well, but I always think, and I know it is a, a big part of it why people will sell, but I also see, you know, for such a long time that it's not about money. And I'm thinking of one that's just an exchange that happened yesterday and it's a lady that, you know, had a fixed idea in her head, I can't sell below, and you've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't about that. It was about that her husband had passed many years before. It was the letting go and then, of course, mm. where she was going on the other side. Mm-hmm. So you know, we helped to find another property um, and those sorts of things. So I think it's it's twofold. You're helping buyers. By helping buyers at an auction and prior, um, you're helping sellers. But I also think by helping buyers genuinely, even if you're getting nothing out of it as an agent, you know, it's long-term, you know, it's like planting seeds for the future, whether you know, get, it's not about getting anything out of it, but they tell their family and their friends, I had a great experience, look what they did, knowing that you didn't have to go out of your way to do it, knowing you didn't have to do that, and knowing you weren't getting anything out of it. But this is really the difference between somebody who's in it for the long game versus someone's in for the quick grabbing, you know, grab and snatch or snatch and grab. And mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly, you know, you're in a, in a lifestyle area, mm-hmm. but you're also in a family business. So mm-hmm. you as an individual has seen the benefit of having those relationships and that repeat business. I guess we haven't really interviewed yet any agents that are particularly manipulative, but there's plenty out there and they, they do it for reasons, I guess, that are less altruistic. But the paradox is, I guess, really is that by being altruistic or by being really concerned about that big picture and actually helping people, you do actually probably influence them more than if you weren't. But I imagine you could very easily switch off a buyer by, you know, rubbing them up the wrong way. And I imagine you've got, you know, experiences when auctions haven't gone well and, you know, you feel like you've lost buyers for some reason or they don't like you. I think that's something that, again, early on and probably when I was more in that pencil stage that I always thought, how does the underbidder feel? Mm. Mm. So I've always trained the agents in there that I've worked with 
and of course as an agent myself, the first person that I go up to is the underbidder mm-hmm. because the person that walks away, the underbidder or bidders, they're the ones that could go, oh, I didn't want to deal with because they've almost been, in a sense, if it's public shame almost, oh, yeah. whereas if they're made to feel comfortable, you know, oh, you almost got it, Veronica. You know, I thought you were going to be almost there. You know, Chris has got something else on Monday that he'll um, let you know about. One thing we've it's talked about on a previous podcast is the how vulnerable the buyer is who's just missed out at an auction. Mm. And do you find that as well? Like once someone's just missed out at an auction, you know, they are they're very, I guess, frustrated and, you know, generally speaking, they're very emotional. Mm, definitely. And, you know, do you find that they're the ones who actually go out and buy something that may not be the right thing yeah, for them? peak buying mode. It's yeah. like, oh, uh, aren't they what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Forget the needs that you just talked about. This one here, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, they are. If you bought and sold property, you know, it, it actually is a big task going out every weekend looking at property and you get almost over it. It's like exhausting. Yeah. Have you ever found that somebody's really, you've been watching them and think, oh, my God, they just bought the wrong property? Yeah, I have, yep. Yep, often. Yep. Not, a, not a huge amount, but, yeah, I, you can see they're sort of settled um, for a property, yeah. Yeah, that'll do. And what do. about when? A vendor comes to you and, you know, it's not a great property. Do you sometimes refuse to take on property? Um, I, very rarely, but the ones that would, would be in our area where that would be the case is ones where you walk out the back door, I'm just thinking one not so long ago, walked out the back door and you could hear zzz, Oh, zzz, the electrical zzz, tower. Yeah, so you've got the Eiffel Tower in the backyard. <laughs> you know, then the reason I say that, and, and look, every property can has an owner, um, even if it's a... Um, at like a falling down property, I feel when I take on a property, I have to see every part of it. In It's almost like I fall in love with the property. So because I know that's going to transfer. And if there's a staunch in for an example at the back, I, I don't believe I'm the right agent for that particular property. But anything else, I think there's always buyers for every property. One particular episode, very memorable episode of the show was filmed out at Dural and, you know, that was one of our criteria don't go near it's a fairly obvious one the power towers or the staunches i imagine when when you're at that property i think do you believe that the smells what you hear in the background the the weather actually affect the result and and i guess how how much do you think that plays a part for any open for inspection or t- taking um, a buyer through i think it starts from the moment that they um they see the see the property they come up the driveway um, and right to, I mean, from a residential or a acreage, right from the way the agent, if it's a private inspection, for example, puts the key in the door, are they are they doing it that it's opening the key to the new life? It's a, it's a new home. And I think if it's done in a way, we're often agents, for an example, we're fumbling around with keys and, you know, and it transfers. Yep. There's no doubt that transfers. Um, so, so, I you, think, so you take that performance element down to the nitty gritty. Yeah, I think it's not a thought out sort of thing. I just think that if you're thinking along the lines of respect, if you're thinking about, um, you know, the goodness and the positives about a property, then it just transfer. It's a mindset thing. Yeah. And in terms of styling, do you think that plays a big part? And and for the homes that you're selling, you know, do you recommend to get their stuff out, get the top stuff in and get the horses in and the ponies? We always uh, have our stylists come through and we'll, even if it's using their own furniture and there's nothing to be added or blending, 
or completely uh, redoing internally. It might be just shifting around furniture and opening up spaces and um, obviously stylists, that's a, a craft in itself um, to be able to show more space, more light and lots of those things. I think that's a critical element. But I also think there's something that we've seen probably with the styling side of things where it can be almost a bit over-styled and become too... Oh, I love those ones. I've taken a few photos on, on weekends and stuck them on my Facebook page because they're hilarious. But I mean, I'm curious to know that so you have a certain level of, you know, presentation and there's there's obviously a way in which you would go through conducting the open houses, uh, all the communication with the, the buyer. It's all carefully thought out and, and, you know, like you said, you've got a mindset around it. Are all your competitors the same? No. So from a buyer's point of view, do you think that they pay more money buying the same house through you? Definitely. <laughs> right? Definitely. So so the big lesson for buyers in many cases is to actually look beyond the, the sizzle and look at the sausage that mm. they're buying. Mm. Mm. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? You know, well, yeah. you've heard that saying, you know, you're mm. not selling a sausage, you're selling the sizzle. Mm. That so it's so much more pleasurable. And when you're going to spend millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a property, you actually want to feel like the experience has been a good one too, don't you? And I think from what you just said as well. See, I, I very much believe that. Um, I, and I mean, obviously, by working for the vendor, we, we we need to work with the buyers. And I very much believe, like, if it's a matter of an extra ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty, a hundred, in twenty years' time, does it really matter? So I need to be able to believe that this is the right decision for the buyer to do that. It doesn't matter if it's a good property in there, you know, and that's that's where your belief comes in. So I guess as if you're sold on it, it's a really good asset, mm. you know, then that's that makes it easier to sell, I guess. Definitely, I think that. And I also I also think it is the, you know, if you go back to the selling style like Tom Hopkins, that sort of thing, I think those days are long, long gone. We can only really lead them to make that decision. For an example, Second inspections, we try and get as many second inspections because we know that the second time that they see it, they're much more connected. And are you picking that time or are they? So are you saying, are you trying to find the perfect time to present the property, for example, sunset? Ideally, yeah, ideally. You know, I guess that's just something for buyers probably to be aware. You know, it's not always sunsets, I guess. Yeah, well, so we do both (laughs) both twilights and uh, and midweek um, uh, during the day and, of course, that is often... Um, when the property shows up in its best light. There's no doubt the open home times, we time it time it to show it ideally in its best. Yes, yeah, so the trick there is to uh, come to at a different time. Request a yeah, different time, yeah, at, yeah. you know, at, don't be led by the agent. Every week we hear incredible stories of dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and creating a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Kate. Help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Okay. So the, the story that I'm thinking of is a property that sold about uh, four weeks ago. It was an acreage property and um, it was good acres and it was in the affordable bracket. We had 21 contracts out and um, gentleman uh, who was interested in it put an offer in prior like we talked about just before, we said his offer would um, would stand until uh, it was like Friday, 5 p.m. Yep. It wasn't a huge like over-the-top sort of offer, which, you know, had it been, uh, we might have recommended our, our owners consider. <laughs> he went to his solicitor, got some terms in a confidential manner and didn't want us to know who it was, the buyer. At the auction, I gave him my card. Anyway, 
he handed back my card. So that was that nice, nice of him. Um, and he then proceeded to bid, in which case we're at the, the stage we're bidding and well and truly over reserve. And the difference between him owning it and the other buyer was $1,000. <laughs> and he missed out. And of course, if you set yourself a limit, sure, but try and have an odd amount or difference in there. For $1,000, the difference of him owning that property is just uh, just crazy. So is that stubbornness? I mean, in giving just, your card back. If I can say it politely, it's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Pig-headed, pig-headedness by the sounds like of it. You, just- you know, for $1,000, you're not going to. Look, and fair enough, people might get to their point where they go, look, I've, I've already stretched myself, but we knew he had the capacity in there to go further. And so he would have walked out. So he didn't actually get to the the amount that he offered pre-auction. Uh, no, it was over that. But it was we did, over that. We did know that he had the the capacity. So. so, so your point there about this guy was it really got in his own way. He was so stubborn and pig-headed mm. about it that he failed to go to, p- to where he could have gone to mm. buy a property that suited him really well. You're saying that he actually got in his own way mm. and should have bought it, but didn't. He got all the way to the trough, but then just didn't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, big regrets. He's still still regretting it now. Oh, um, so we do it. see that occasionally where people will do that. Well, that's the benchmark. Then they can't. They can never get as good a property, and, and yeah. if prices are rising, worse properties are more expensive. Yeah. So that and makes I, it hard. And I think that goes without saying. Like we we're talking about, like making sure that they're known to the agent, um, and saying things favourable rather than uh, negative. I yeah. think that's a perfect Dumbo. I mean, that's the elephant there. Self sabotaging. You know, the rider on top would have rationally bought that property. But that elephant, the stubborn elephant, just didn't want to do it, sat down and, you know, it's a perfect Dumbo. Well, Kate, thank you so much. You've really given us some great food for thought and some insights into a different market, certainly than than I'm active in as well. But one of the things that I really loved that you admitted, and it's true, that agents have favourites and, you know, some of the tips that you've given our listeners so that they can actually put themselves ahead of the game. How can our listeners find out more about you? Sure. Well, you certainly can contact me direct on my mobile, 0414 620 or direct on email, which is just simply kate, K-A-T-E, at lumbyhampson.com.au. Thank you, Kate. I mean, my main takeaway was they're all around the performance, everything from the, the initial listing to when they drive up the driveway to where they put the key in, um, everything the agent should be doing and could be doing to you is all performance to, I guess, get your emotional drivers to the property. So I guess it's being aware of all that. Um, you can use it to your advantage, but I guess it's just letting, not letting that elephant get wrapped up in the experience just too much. Thank you. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is how to be the preferred buyer. Now, there's a lot of games that buyers play, and I guess what they've got to understand is that agents are humans as well, and agents prefer to deal with people that are easy to deal with. So while I'm not encouraging you to roll over and tell an agent everything, I think it's important to understand that agents have favourites And in order to be the preferred buyer, it's important that you learn to communicate with the agent and get them to like you. So the thing is that whilst I'm not advocating that you give away all your secrets, you do need to A, let them know that you're interested. And the easiest way to do that really is to ask for a contract. That's the most concrete way of doing it. But communicate with them, respond and answer their phone calls. 
Talk to them. Tell them what you do, do like and don't like. Don't try to play games with them. Don't talk down the property because you think you're going to get it for a better price if you do. You won't get a good quality of information from the agents when you try those sort of games. So just remember, these agents are human beings as well. They're also experts in this area. So if you try to play games with them, you are actually going to be outsmarted and you need to just get them on side and work with them. So that's the best way to be the preferred buyer. So Veronica, what have we added to the Elephant Memory Bank this week? Well, you know, this whole chat with Kate has really got me thinking and buyers need really good guidance when it comes to actually how to set their maximum bid before they go to auction. There are two elements to this. There's obviously the idea of how much the property is worth to you and the emotional side of things, but you do need to think rationally as well and how much does the property or how much is the property worth and how does it sit in terms of the rest of the market. So I do have a video that I have put together on this exact topic and it is a guide to how to set your maximum bid at auction. So we'll put the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, please come back and join us next week when we interview Shannon Whitney, the CEO of Bresick Whitney Estate Agents. Our conversation with Shannon was really quite philosophical. We really delved into why people cannot trust real estate agents and how the way in which success has been measured in the past no longer applies to the current nor the future and how the whole thing has to change. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and we'd love an iTunes review. We're getting lonely here. Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.